Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. It's really great to have you with us. My name is Andy McClanahan, and today my guests and I will be talking about neurodiversity in social work and examining how employers and educators can improve support for neurodivergent social workers. If you're not familiar with what neurodiversity is, keep listening and we can find out more together. Because with me today are social workers Deb Solomon and Florence Smith. Deb is chair of the Baswa Neurodivergent Social Workers Special Interest Group and Florence is a campaigner for neuroinclusion, host of the blog The Neurodivergent Social Worker and she is also a member of the Baswa Special Interest Group. Florence, Deb, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. Deb, how are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. Thanks for having us. Oh, it's wonderful to have you on. Great. Uh, Florence, how are you? I'm well, thank you. And again, thank you for having us on to talk neurodiversity. Absolute pleasure. Florence, where are you right now? So I am in sunny but frosty Southampton. Oh, lovely. Okay, wonderful. And uh, Deb, are you somewhere in East Midlands? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I'm um, just right in between Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire. Okay. Um, Yeah, again, very frosty, very, very cold. (laughs) So today we're going to be talking about neurodiversity. It's not a term that's going to mean a lot to some people and we want to find out more. We're going to be talking about your experiences, but we're also going to be talking about your work through the Basel Special Interest Group. Now, I understand that the term neurodiversity has been around since the 1990s. Could you start us off with an overview of what neurodiversity is? If you think neurodiversity, if you break the word down, neuro brain diversity is difference. Um, so neurodiversity to begin with, it's it's accepting that everyone thinks differently, everyone has different traits, everyone has different likes, dislikes, um, different strengths, different challenges. Um, but under the, I suppose, umbrella of neurodiversity, there's certain conditions that are covered, say things like ADHD, autism, dyslexia, dyspraxia, uh, dyscalculia, tic disorder. Um, so it's just, it's looking at different uh, different ways of thinking. And would Tourette's also fall, you mentioned tech, tech disorder, would Tourette's fall under the, the, the umbrella, yeah? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, that's one form of tick disorder. And just so we have a complete understanding, ADHD is one of those terms, abbreviations that we hear all the time. Just give us the, the full, the full uh, name for what ADHD stands for. Okay, so it's Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder which I really dislike as a, yeah. as a title. <laughs> okay, tell me more about that. Why is that? I mean, so I have, an, I have a diagnosis of ADHD, but I don't see that I am disordered. I'm certainly not hyperactive a lot of the time. Um, it, yeah, it, it's, it's a very negative medicalised term, which does not at all encapsulate me and who I am and what I am. Um, and I think straight away that stigma is there, isn't it? With that name, that title, it's, it's a stigma immediately. I, I think the hyperactive aspect of it probably gives people quite a misunderstanding of what ADHD actually covers. You know, it's, I imagine for some people it kind of conjures up a, almost like, like a sort of a manic state of, you know, tons of energy, um, yeah. lack of focus. Yeah. So when I was diagnosed and they said that, I said, but I'm not hyperactive, but it was explained to me that actually I am, but it's internal. So it's, it's, it's within my my thoughts, I guess, my brain, it's very, very, very active. And it doesn't kind of, the ADHD title doesn't encompass the um, differences in regulation and how um, ADHD can often be about regulation, regulating your attention, but also regulating your emotions as well, which is a massive thing with ADHD. Uh, And I speak from someone who is also trying to seek a diagnosis for ADHD. 
Okay, okay. Florence, you have currently have a diagnosis for dyslexia, is that right? Yeah, and dyspraxia. Okay, and for people, people may not understand, I think most people probably have an understanding of dyslexia, but if you take us through dyslexia and dyspraxia, just so no one has a misunderstanding. Oh, of course. So dyslexia is around um, processing. It's kind of more commonly thought about with reading and writing, but we have these different skills which are called the mind skills. So these are material reasoning, how we interact with the world, interconnected reasoning, how we interact with different ideas, with different concepts, um, and it's narrative reasoning. So how we can think in stories and how we remember by kind of pictures as opposed to facts. We can remember scenes. We might remember where we learned something, but we might not remember that specific fact. And D is our dynamic reasoning as well. So um, looking at, again, um, putting stories into words, putting stories into concepts. And then dyspraxia is, um, it was formerly known as clumsy child syndrome. Let's talk, talk about pejorative <laughs> labelling, yes. Yeah, so a lot of the myths and misconceptions um, that people hold on to would be um, kind of typically... Uh, bumping into things, not having a sense of direction, dexterity can be difficult. So I often hold things too hard or too loosely. I mean, holding a bottle or a glass of water is not my friend at times. Uh, but more kind of, I guess, uncommonly known is differences in executive function and actual verbal skills as well. Um, often I might trip over my tongue or my lips because I have difficulty kind of getting things out here out of my mind and through my mouth and working my body to do that as well. I mean, that thing about clumsiness, I remember even being back to being little, you know, when you are told off for being clumsy. It's one of those things, like, it's, it's an accident if you are, you know, if you've, if you've had an accident. But then to have that when you do actually have a condition that is causing you to have um, difficulties in terms of coordination, I mean, that must be quite hard to deal with as a little one when you don't maybe have the, have the language to articulate what's happening. Definitely. It was definitely a challenge in school with the likes of sports. Um, but moving into the workplace as a social worker, it can look at um, kind of uh, being blind to direction. So we're often going out on visits and it can use a lot of my energy and a lot of my spoons to be able to navigate getting to that visit, making sure that I have enough time for it um, and not getting stressed out by that experience. Right, there's so much in that. I want to come back later on because I want to talk about strengths um, uh, associated with neurodiversity because often we just think of, you know, problems and um, also the, the impacts that it has when you are seeking to maybe people are either masking their traits or having to adapt to work within the expectations of a neurotypical world. But before we move on, I want to talk about just the term neurodiversity. Do we know where it actually originated? Yeah, I mean, um, it was Judy Singer that came up with it in the 90s. Um, and later on, it was Harvey Bloom, I think, that did some work um, additionally. And Judy, I believe, is autistic. And she was just seeing, um, I guess, the stigma and the discrimination around people that had those those kinds of diagnosis, um, where actually she was kind of saying, you know, this is just a different way of thinking. It isn't. Um, it isn't something where... There needs to be discrimination. It isn't less than. It isn't. Um, it shouldn't be seen as a disorder. So she kind of came up with that term to change the the mindset, I guess, and the culture to try and say this is just difference. It isn't. It isn't about less than, and it's about embracing strengths and the fact that we're all different. Actually, 
is the the term condition is that okay to use or is that is that negative in itself it's a funny one isn't it but i don't quite know what to replace it with yeah i mean is there anything you would like I was going to say, um, I often refer to neurotype um, as opposed to a condition. So you might have um, a certain neurotype as opposed to a certain condition um, because they also overlap yeah. as well. Um, so, And this is only my own language because every person is individual and will, per- will prefer different things. So I will often say I have a combined neurotype of dyslexia and dyspraxia. I'm going to try to use the term neurotype for this interview and from now on if I slip up please just correct me Um, now in terms of different neurotypes and and Florence you just mentioned that they often overlapped um, can this cause difficulty in achieving a diagnosis you know will a child for example be diagnosed with autism and they may also have ADHD but that not be identified does that does that happen? Definitely. So um, Amanda Kirby, who founded Do It Solutions, she uses an amazing infographic that um, explains that overlap is the rule, not the exception. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Which I think is absolutely fantastic. So if we think of it like that, then we think of people's neurotypes and spiky profiles quite holistically. Uh, but at the moment, assessments you, where you receive a formal diagnosis, they often assess for one neurotype. Um, and that assessor might only be qualified to be looking at that one neurotype. So, for example, in my dyslexia assessment, it was identified that I had dyspraxic traits, but they couldn't diagnose it there and then because that wasn't the purpose of that assessment and they weren't qualified to. So then I had to go and seek a diagnosis elsewhere for the dyspraxia. And as I've mentioned before, um, have noticed ADHD um, traits within myself as well. But in each of those individual assessments, it didn't allow for that holistic assessment of how does my brain work and what my um, one spiky profile look like. And that's what happened again with my ADHD assessment. So I had my ADHD assessment, but um, at the same time, they said that I had very strong autistic traits. But because it was an ADHD assessment, I couldn't be diagnosed with autism. Florence, just coming back to what you said, you said that overlap is the rule, not the exception. Did I get that right? Yes. Okay, wonderful. Now, I've read a number number of articles recently about uh, autistic people who have received a diagnosis um, as adults. And just last week, the comedian Johnny Vegas was in the news explaining he has recently been diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 52. What I'm keen to know is if we have any idea of how many people with a condition which falls within the neurodiversity umbrella have never received a diagnosis. Do we have any idea what that might be? I don't know that we know how many haven't, but I I think when you look at things like, um, so for example, I'm on a two-year waiting list for an autism diagnosis. So when you look at statistics like that, I suspect there's there's a lot of undiagnosed people out there um, and there's also a lot of misdiagnosis, especially, for example, in women. A lot of women are diagnosed with things like depression and anxiety rather than perhaps ADHD or autism because they're the external signs that um, you know, a medical professional might see rather than you know, the underlying diagnosis. So I'm, I'm thinking like specifically in relation to social work. Social work is a predominantly female uh, profession. If autism, for example, is being misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed in women, what what impact does that have then within the profession? I think, um, firstly, it's, I guess it's masking because it's that kind of, um, this assumption that you must try and be acceptable. You must be like everybody else. You must, you're always wanting to try and fit in. And I think when you are neurodivergent, um, there's always that feeling of not quite being the same as everybody else. Um, 
And, you know, that has an impact. It has an impact on you not being able to be, I suppose, your whole self. And there's a statistic, and again, I know you're going to ask me where this came from, and I'm not entirely sure, but um, there was a statistic that said a neurodivergent child hears 20,000 more criticisms than a neurotypical child. And when you think about how that would impact your your self-worth, you're already kind of going into maybe the profession feeling that you've got to do more to prove yourself. And I think that's one of the big impacts is that you're always trying to do more. You're always trying to prove yourself. You're always trying to kind of be extra so that um, you can prove your worth. And that's exhausting. And I think that's probably the main the main impact is that it's exhausting um, and it leads very quickly to burnout. I'm here nodding along as much as possible as well because it's that kind of, it's that ca- comparison to people who might be neurotypical as well and trying to do what is the expected norm. And when you can't achieve that for things that you can't change, it really does impact your self-esteem. And when people aren't willing to meet you halfway to enable you to do kind of the normal, I put that in air quotes, the normal amount of work, that that can hit really hard. Um, And I've often um, thought of it as burnout, but more recently have looked at it as moral injury um, and actually feeling that kind of I'm in a profession that's meant to be helping people, but when you don't receive that help and often or sometimes met with prejudice or barriers, you get that moral injury of actually this doesn't the way um, the practice doesn't meet the expectations of the profession at that time. I think that's a really helpful way to look at it. I mean, criticism criticism is terrible. Criticism of children is terrible. I, I, I've been thinking a lot back over kind of my early years and things that have affected me. And this was nothing to do with any anything to do with uh, neurodiversity or anything, but just, you know, criticism from teachers, it kind of, it really gets in your head and it does, it has, I think, unless it's dealt with, can have lifelong impacts in terms of confidence, in terms of your belief in your skills and stuff. But when it's something which is as intrinsic to you as your neurotype, you know, that's going to have a huge impact. Um, In terms of, I'm just thinking, um, it's not something I plan to ask, so if if you don't want to answer this, don't. But in terms of um, any sort of counselling or therapy to address those issues, is that something that the the special interest group is looking at, you know, in terms of helping people who are neurodiverse to, to access those sorts of services? I mean... So there's a few things that we are doing. So, for example, we're working with the um, professional support service within Basworth to try and ensure that the coaches there are understanding and trained um, in neurodiversity so they understand how to support neurodivergent social workers because it is different. It's a different kind of support. Um, And then things like, in fact, we've just decided that our next meeting, the focus is going to be post-diagnosis because there's been a lot of people explaining that, you know, we get diagnosed quite a lot of people get diagnosed late and what does that mean because what tends to happen in this country is you get offered two choices you get kind of here's some medication or here's some coaching but you don't get both so you get diagnosed and then sent on your way but that doesn't help you come to terms with your kind of identity what does this mean for me how do I manage myself who am I do I do this because it's me or because it's my 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 neurotype uh, you know, and, and I think there's a lot about that. So I think there's a lot about peer support within the group. There's a lot about sort of sharing experiences and supporting each other. And in fact, quite often that takes over the whole meeting, doesn't it, Florence, where there's a lot of support. And But I think it's essential because it's never been out there. People come and join the meetings where, you know, they're in tears because they didn't know there was anyone else out there. And 
that in itself is almost therapeutic being able to share experiences and think actually i'm i'm not alone in this uh, and although it's sad that that you're not alone it's also um, kind of reassuring because it's like okay so now we can work together so that that uh, receiving a diagnosis even if it's a late di- diagnosis how significant is that you, you mentioned in terms of services you mentioned medication or coaching um right so taking a step back not thinking about the services, just having the diagnosis and being understood, perhaps. How important is that uh, to have that diagnosis, even if it comes later in life? I mean, I can only speak from a personal perspective as well, but uh, having that diagnosis for myself has been really important um, because as a neurodivergent person, you don't come to self-diagnosis lightly. You've done your research. Um, but it's you still need that professional to validate it. And once that has happened, you can reframe um, or it enabled me to reframe a lot of my lived experiences and actually be a little bit kinder to myself and think, oh, OK, maybe you found you didn't find socialising hard because nobody liked you. It was because actually understanding the unwritten social rules were really difficult and maintaining a friendship was actually very difficult so rather than internalizing it as I'm inherently bad it's I am different and these things are a little bit more difficult. Is that one example just to explore socializing is that something that you find difficult? Yeah definitely um so uh in my head I've got all of these things that I'm finding difficult popping up but it can be kind of the end unwritten social rules of what do you say in in a conversation so sometimes I might have certain scripts of what I might say Um, often it can be facial reactions to what people say are you meant to have a straight face so sometimes I might have this uh, I'm saying uncomfortable because it feels uncomfortable for me but this uncomfortable smile that just sits there because I'm not sure what else to do with my face and small talk Small talk is just, I don't understand it. It's this thing, you know, when someone says, hi, are you okay? I, do you want to know if I'm okay? Or are you just saying that as a phrase? I'm not quite sure. I just need you to sort of confirm what it is you're asking. And if you talk to me about the weather, you, you're going to have to end the conversation because I'll just keep going. Because if you say something, then I'll reply and then you'll reply and then I'll reply and it will go forever until you end it because I don't understand when to stop. <laughs> we didn't talk about the weather today and I'm glad we didn't because it's the standard one. You're like, hi, I, I always at the start of the podcast say, hey, how you doing? Where are you? And everyone always says where they are and just, oh, no, we did. We talked about Frosty. We did. Everyone said I, it was Frosty. Yeah, and I said, yeah, sorry. We did. Sorry. Uh, sorry. I didn't ask a question about the weather. That's that's what that was the difference. Yeah. I didn't ask a question. Um, yeah. Small talk. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm in terms of conversation, I love, I love the chat. But I mean, uh, sometimes if I'm asked about... Um, you ask that question, how are you? It is that sort of, do you really want to know? And sometimes you just give yeah. the full answer. Um, but so just just to come back to that, Deb, if, if I were to say, if we were bumping to each other in the office, Deb, how are you doing? Um, how is that received then? What does that mean to you? Are, you? are you questioning whether I'm asking you just, how's the form? Yeah, are you well? Or do I really want to know specific details? Is that, is that, yeah. is that what you're thinking? In, in my head, that, that goes on. But what actually happens is a scripted response will come out. So... Okay. If I actually really wanted to talk to somebody, for example, I, I wouldn't know how to because I wouldn't know whether they actually really wanted to know. And then I'd have a whole internal conversation about, well, maybe they did want to know and I don't know whether they wanted to know. Perhaps they're not 
they don't actually care enough to and it, that will go on for quite a long time and that's all the stuff that affects your your self-worth and your thoughts i guess yes it's quite so, exhausting <laughs> so i'm kind of we're jumping all over the place in terms of my script and that's totally fine but what i wanted to ask then because a really good example of that is in terms of making um social workers social work employers um striving towards a neuro inclusive workplace supervision you know, that would be a good example of that. So if your boss sits you down, starts to supervision, how are things going? How are you feeling? Um, how can that then be, um, how can those questions be raised in a way which are um, not going to lead to a misunderstanding or confusion? I think for me, it it's about being purposeful because I think um, providing we know it's purposeful, then it's okay. So for example, supervision, we know that's the purpose of supervision. We know that's the expectation. Okay. So therefore, we can we can do those questions, but it's 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 being clear with what the expectations are and talking to us about that, um, having the same sort of structure. So knowing, right, okay, when when I'm asked how am I, you actually want to know it. It that's the purpose of that question. I know that's what the purpose is, and I can I can do that then. Um, you know, supervision is a, a good example because it's things like. Um, expecting this is this expectation in supervision isn't there that you're gonna kind of come straight up with all your cases and remember exactly what's going on with all of them and if you look then that's kind of a weakness we don't retain things in that way because we don't need to and I think to be honest that's kind of a strength because you don't need to fill that space it's not necessary because you've got the skills to look and read so it's just understanding that we do things slightly differently. We're going to need things in writing afterwards to remember because I'm too busy listening to what you're saying. If you want me to be writing it down, I will do, but then I won't be listening to what you're saying if you want my focus. So it's just okay. understanding okay. things like that. Social work, you know, social work is a profession which is firmly rooted in the promotion of social justice. And I'm keen to know, you know, the barriers that society constructs that affect neurodiverse people, are they sufficiently regarded within the profession as a social injustice? I mean, personally, I don't think so at this moment in time. I think it is something that is developing, uh, but I don't think the barriers facing neurodivergent social workers are sufficiently considered um, or recognised or regarded as a matter of social injustice at the moment. And for me, this is an issue of awareness. Um, as following, um, I've delivered training on neuroinclusion to managers, but the passion for change that follows is incredible. Um, but it's not always there to begin with. It's not always on the agenda to begin with. And it's not always considered. Neurotypicality seems to be the assumed norm within social work. Um, so there are some people where it is and becoming a factor on their agenda and they are making waves but it is taking kind of slow little mm. steps and it seems to be pushed by us as a uh, kind of neurodivergent community as well yeah and when you think about things like um so services services are reliant on on things like accessing phone calls um and if you're struggling with your executive functioning and making a phone call at a particular time of day that's quite hard um, and then you get the labels of um, not engaging. Um, and I think we've talked a few times um, in some of the webinars that we've done about the double empathy problem. And um, that was some work that was done by Dave, uh, Damien Milton. And he said that, you know, neurotypical people tend to relate very well to neurotypical people. Neurodivergent people relate very well to neurodivergent people, but there's not much meat in the middle. But 
neurodivergent people have to understand the neurotypical world because we, to, to survive, to thrive, we have to kind of step into that world. But it doesn't necessarily work the other way around unless there's a need. Um, and at the moment, I don't think we meet 50-50. Um, I don't think we meet in the middle. And that's... Uh, yeah, that does cause barriers. There's also the importance to understand that if you've met one neurodiverse person, you've met one neurodiverse person. Yeah, not to extrapolate Absolutely. across. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's the point of neurodiversity is that it takes away it takes away these silos and these boxes and you, you're looking at the traits of a person as opposed to what that diagnosis might script within the diagnostic manual it, you're looking at a trait of a person it's a, it is a tendency though in terms of the typical whatever is considered and i'll do the air quotes and um, like for us that earlier the normal i mean uh, an issue i'd be much more familiar with would be down syndrome and this is a family member has down syndrome and you'll often have those ridiculous things said like you know oh people with down syndrome they're so loving they're so lovely all the time and i was like have you met many people with Down syndrome? Because that's not the way people are, because people are not like that all the time, you know, and I feel that frustration, but that's because it's an issue which is much closer to me. And I, yeah, that's it's really helpful just to, to remember that. Don't extrapolate based on your very limited understanding of an individual. Yeah. Um, and a good example of that, sorry, I was going to say, a good example of that is ADHD. You know, straight away, people think ADHD, they think um, children, they think probably male, they think very, um, you know, active running around you know I am not any of those things <laughs> um, and I have never been any of those things um, you know so straight away all of those kind of unconscious bias that we have about any of these um, diagnoses it, you know when I was told I had ADHD I was really surprised because I, I am not those I was the kid that sat at the back gazing out the window you know drawing on my hands and sort of fiddling with pens <laughs> yeah yeah, I can't think of any specific examples, but I do have a sort of a vague sense of like media portrayal of ADHD always being that yeah. thing, little boy running around, loads of energy. Um, uh, I'm guessing the media probably has had, a, in many, as it does in many issues, kind of a, a, an unhelpful approach in terms of vastly oversimplifying um, yeah, portrayals um, of people with a, um, a, um, who are neurodiverse. On yeah. that point, do we have an understanding of the proportion of the population who are neurodivergent? Yeah, I mean, it's said that it's one in seven. Um, I suspect there's so when you're thinking about people that are undiagnosed, you know, it's very difficult to say, isn't it? And I think when you look at things like social work, I think there is um, there is a draw to probably more the more empathetic, the more caring profession. So I would suspect possibly, although this is just a subjective view, um, that there's perhaps a higher percentage within within social work um, and then when you look at other statistics so for example within the criminal justice system it's it's said to be one in three which I think really does show those barriers and probably the lack of support that we give to neurodivergent people and probably the outcomes of lack of support there. Oh sorry so the prison population you're saying is one in three yeah, would have one a, in three. Oh, okay okay um, now I just want to come back a little bit to a point you talked about people who are neurodivergent being drawn to the caring professions um, there is I think there is, correct me if I'm wrong, but there there seems to be a misconception, for example, with people with autism, that they aren't um, empathetic, that there's a sort of perception that people with autism maybe lack compassion. That is not correct as from what you're saying? No, I think it's the opposite, to be honest. I think we're sometimes too, not too empathetic, because I don't think that's that's the case, but I think we're, we're sort of hyper, hyper empathetic and... Um, yeah. 
you know, I think we're very, very much in tune to um, maybe difference. Maybe maybe it's because we feel different and we haven't quite always fitted in that, that we're very much in tune to um, what's going on and um, looking externally. But no, absolutely, I don't think that is that is true. And I think it comes back to that double empathy bind again of um, kind of neurotypicals and neurodivergent people experience the world differently and we will often relate back to our experiences of the situation. So sometimes when someone thinks, oh, that's not very empathetic or compassionate, I wouldn't have done that, um, that might be because you're neurotypical and experiencing it differently and aren't meeting that kind of 50-50. Okay, so if I was neurodivergent and experienced bright noises, loud sounds, how how might I feel in that situation? Um, so it is that kind of that meeting in the middle. So we have talked a little bit so far about the negative misconceptions that are associated with neurodivergent traits um, uh, that, that neurodivergent people encounter, but I'd like to dig a bit more into that. Can we look at examples of the sort of negative misconceptions that um, neurodiverse people will, will encounter in relation to their traits? I think you've you've covered um, one already that we don't have empathy, and that is one, um, as I've said, really gets to me. Um, but the other is the um, assumption or misconception that we know what we need to be supported. Um, and actually, this isn't true. We're told in our assessments what doesn't work for us. They often take a deficit model of, okay, Florence finds it difficult to process verbal information, but nowhere in that assessment will it say, Florence might benefit from having um, diagrams to show processes. She might benefit from having written down instructions. Um, so the assumption that we kind of have our own instruction manual is one that I always enjoy busting because I'm figuring it out just as much as anywhere else in the world and just as much as someone who's trying to support me as well. Um, so to bust that myth, I say, um, again, it's meeting in the middle and working together. Um, and then coming from the dyslexic one, uh, so as a teenager, when someone found out my diagnosis, they said to me, well, found out about my diagnosis of dyslexia and dyspraxia, said, well, if you can't think and you can't do, what's the point? Um, and for me, that really doubled down on the myth and misconception that neurodivergence impacts our intelligence. Uh, and as a dyslexic social worker, because of this misconception, I was always really scared about disclosing my dyslexia. Um, as historically, uh, that teacher did think it impacted my um, intelligence, which it didn't. And even in my assessed and supported year in employment panel, um, one of the panel members commented that they couldn't tell I was dyslexic. And as innocent as that comment was meant to be, in internally my mind's doing somersaults like do they think i'm stupid what does a dyslexic person's writing look like yeah but it's also it's also there's also kind of that implicit it's almost a compliment oh i didn't know you're dyslexic you know you'd never tell as if it's a bad thing to be dyslexic it, exactly that there is that negative assumption of being dyslexic means that you can't do this um and i'm really yeah. proud to identify as dyslexic um so i would love everyone to know that i identify as dyslexic so it's that kind of yeah, those misconceptions and assumptions. Yeah, I mean, I think as well, it's this misconception of uh, the amount of times I've had people say, oh, yeah, everyone's a bit ADHD. I've even had, you know, a GP say, a GP has said to me in an appointment, oh, it's my understanding that everybody is a little bit ADHD. And 
you know, immediately what that does is belittle everything that you're feeling, that you're kind of um, going through, because there are a lot of strengths that we bring, but equally it is a challenge, it is difficult. And when someone says, oh, you know, everyone has those challenges though, everyone does that though, you then, it feeds straight back into that kind of, um, okay, so I'm not good enough, I just need to try harder then. I am just being lazy then. I just need to do more then. And then before you know it, you're you're working for 15 hours a day because you're, you're trying to keep up with these impossible ideas that you must, you know, you must stick to. So, um, yeah, it's that it's that thing of everybody's on everyone's on the spectrum. Everybody's a bit this. Everybody's a bit that. Well, they're not. They're we hear not. that all the time, though. Everyone's on the spectrum. And I'm just wondering why that is. I mean, if there is. If somebody has one aspect of their behavior that someone who has autism also has, that doesn't mean you have autism or on the spectrum. Um, but that we hear that all the time. I think the, yeah, the point is how much does it impact your day to day living? And that's the point is that you might have that trait. You might have, you might do those things, but do you do that? Do you do that once every few weeks or do you do that yes. like 20 times a day and the impact on yourself like everyone can be yeah. stressed out or become sensory sensory overwhelmed by bright lights but does it physically yes. pain you to yes. be around yeah. bright lights that is the difference i think you know in the last number of years i've noticed a really kind of hateful use of the term autism and autistic as a as a, as a criticism of people um you know as a sort of seen as an almost an acceptable use of a term you know where it would not be seen as acceptable to use any other um term associated with another condition or neurotype or um disability uh so that, and that seems to be part of you know public consciousness that it's okay you know if somebody is super focused on what they're doing you know to say oh you're a bit autistic uh, you know when that individual just isn't and you know that's something which needs to be pushed back hard against yeah i often hear as well people saying things like oh you know you're so ocd you're so autistic you say um you know and it, it's a bit of a laugh and it's a bit of a joke but it it's not taking into account again that impact of actually what it feels like to be those things and um you know, to, to try and to fit in and to try and overcome those challenges. And, and yeah, it's it's quite soul-destroying when you hear when you hear those things, isn't it? And OCD falls within the neurodiversity umbrella as well, doesn't it, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and I think there's really a lot of space for people to reflect on that and their privilege as well to kind of dip in and out of saying, like, um, if you do kind of have an obsessive thought pattern to dip in and out of that and say, oh, actually, oh, I'm OCD because, yeah, you might have an obsessive thought pattern then, but it, it isn't all the time and it doesn't debilitate you as well and it doesn't kind of take over your life. Thank you, Florence. Thank you, Deb. I want to know more. We have touched on this about the needs of neurodivergent social workers being taken into consideration in social work uh, training and social work practice um, and also once staff are in the workplace, we've talked about supervision. But I'm thinking, for example, that once staff are qualified, you know, measuring against the professional capabilities framework, the first of the nine domains within the PCF is professionalism. And what professionalism is deemed to look like, that's going to depend on the assessor's understanding of neurodivergent traits. And I, I, I suppose it, I, I think a good example, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think a good example in relation to that might be eye contact. Do we have any examples of how neurodiverse social workers are being negatively affected by misunderstandings and misconceptions about what professionalism looks like? Yeah, I mean, um, one example would be, you know, oh, 
they're not a team player. They're always going off into a you know a separate room to sit by themselves, where actually they're going to read reports somewhere quietly. Um, you know things like um, doing case notes in bullet points rather than in a narrative, because actually that's a, an easier way to write. Um, we've heard of of scenarios where students have been taken to concerns meetings because of things like lack of eye contact, um, not necessarily speaking up in very busy team meetings um, just because it's kind of over, it's quite overwhelming and they've wanted to wait until later before they've spoken up and because they've gone off somewhere quiet to read reports. So it's when you're looking at professionalism, we've tried to flip that and say, actually, is it not more professional to be able to say, this is what I need to work at my best. This is what I need for for me to achieve what I'm doing to support the people I'm working with rather than okay, I'm just going to ignore what I need and try and be what you want me to be and probably not do it very well. Um, so we tr- we're trying to flip that notion of professionalism. Um, it's more professional for us to recognise what's needed for us to work better. Is the special interest group, are you working on some guidance for employers? Yeah, yeah. So hopefully um, what we're going to produce is some working guidance um, so that it can just give some tips, some advice, because a lot of the reasonable adjustments that we need, that we ask for, it's nothing huge. It's not thousands of pounds that we're asking for. It's just simple things like um, noise cancelling headphones in a really noisy office, having a corner where perhaps the lights aren't quite so bright, having a little bit of time where you can have quiet time to read reports, um, making sure that things are written down, you know, after a meeting so that you've just got that um, that written document to refer to. Just things like that. A lot of the reasonable adjustments, they're really not, they're really not huge. When are you expecting that guide to be ready? Um, I'd really like to have it out ideally by um, the AGM time because I know that we put a motion through last year. So I think that is... June. Yeah, I think so. I'm wanting to say. I think so. June. Will you come back on once it's Florence? Deb? I'm not. I'm not. We're not. We're not finishing. But will you come back on to talk about it when it's ready? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Yeah. Great. Um, and it will be interesting because I think we're going to try and do some sort of um, conference as well and get a lot of people because I think it's important to get different people's voices heard because, as you said earlier, one neurodivergent person is just one neurodivergent person, and and you know we're talking about our experiences, but there's a whole load of other social workers out there with a load of strengths, a load of interesting stories to tell so it'd be really good to get a conference up um so we'd love to talk about that thanks uh deb now words words matter so much in terms of ensuring people are valued and respected in terms of their identity this is an issue you have addressed a lot on the podcast in relation to a range of issues and i know problems can arise depending on whether person first language or identity first language is used in relation to um, neurodiversity and i'm conscious that i have spoken earlier in the the podcast about people with autism and that would be person first language a person with autism, whereas identity first language would be an autistic person. What advice would you give to colleagues who are unsure about the correct terminology to use? Because people will often be hesitant because they're really worried about making a mistake. Uh, and I, I mean, I feel that all the time. So um, what advice would you give? Ask. Yeah, the first rule is ask, quite simply ask the person. Um, but I think a good rule is remember that um, the neurotype, the diagnosis isn't something that we, it's not a bag that we're carrying around. Uh-huh. We're not 
it's not something that we're standing on. It is us. I've I was told once. Um, oh, I understand that you have ADHD, but don't be it. Don't be it. Who's and, well? Um, sorry, I'm not. I'm not asking you to identify the individual, <laughs> but in, would you be comfortable saying what context that was in? Because that is absolutely wild. Yeah, this was um, this was another social worker, and this was this was not long after I'd been diagnosed, and I one of the ways that I kind of processed my diagnosis was by doing an awareness session for my team because it, it helped me kind of understand myself and I felt that it would, you know, help understanding. But, and it was kind of a, it was more or less a, yeah, we can do it, but can you just stop talking about it, please? Mm-hmm. Um, don't be it. But for me, I am it. It is me. It is my personality. It is myself. Um, and I think if you think about that when you're thinking about terminology, that person is autistic. It is an autistic person. It's not a person with autism. They're not carrying it around on in a backpack. Then I, I think if you think about it like that, you probably can't go wrong. But generally, the rule is ask. yes, absolutely. And I apologise for using that term. I should have said um, <laughs> autistic people. Sorry, Florence. The other important thing with language is is how we use those words as well, um, and kind of when we use words are we kind of weaponizing it are we saying um an autistic person as we've said before as a negative trait or are we talking directly to someone and being informative purposeful and meaningful in our language i always find that can make the difference in how we use words too an intent is everything because if somebody with a good intent uses an incorrect terminology they won't be offended if they're corrected that's the thing i think as somebody who has ill intent or doesn't care about the interests or the feelings of an individual, if they use incorrect terminology, maybe we'll balk at being corrected, but that shows their motivation from the outset. So I'm always happy to be corrected. Um, and it is it is the standard. Oh. You know, I kind of know the answer for uh, for the questions asked, but you know, what what's what's the right approach here? And that is time and time again, everyone says, just ask. Mm-hmm. And I think people have this awkwardness of just asking because we've covered this in relation to uh, issues around um, racism as well. Um, and people are yeah. really terrified of saying the wrong thing. It's just ask, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I want to wrap up shortly, but something I think which is really, really important, we've just touched on near the start, but haven't gone into any depth is around strengths, strengths associated with neurodiversity. Because I think for far too long, the narrative has been, or the common understanding has been that neurodiversity is is limiting to people, um, but that's not the case. It's a different way of being. And I want to look at what are specific strengths, some of the specific strengths, um, perhaps that, that Deb and Florence, that you both um, identify with your neurotypes. Florence, would you be able to tell us a bit about some of the strengths that you see in relation to your dyslexia? Yes, of course. Um, so there's this amazing book called The Dyslexic Advantage, and it frames the strengths and the challenges of specifically dyslexia as two different sides of the same neurological coin. And that's what I absolutely love when I think of my strengths and my challenges, um, because my strengths can be in creative thinking, um, and then at this, and on the other side of that coin, I find it very hard to remember kind of structured information. As I said earlier, I can remember a place where I learned that information, but I might not be able to tell you the fact. Uh, but things such as like problem solving and creative thinking go hand in hand. So I might use some of my own experiences um, or uh, some experiences of practice and then try and relate it to this to come up with a different problem. Um, some of the strengths can be putting complex ideas into images. So I am one to make a flow diagram. 
um, recently started up a new service and to kind of get my head around all the different moving parts and to kind of make the complex simple was to use a diagram because you can use so many words to say one thing but then a picture can say a thousand words. Um, adjustability and this can be give or take. Um, I'm not a big fan of change but I am very adjustable. Um, so say uh, if I am working with a child, young person, parent or carer um, and something might have changed or some, they might have said something which means I need to adapt this session or this visit that I can do um, but say you suddenly pluck me out of this role and put me into another one that change might be a little bit more difficult um, and then spotting patterns and making connections so I can make quite distant connections and to some people this can look really strange and they're wondering where have you got this connection um, but it comes from um, kind of looking several steps back, not always focusing on, on what's in the immediate and what's the most obvious, but actually thinking I'm going to put all of this holistic information to make connections and spot patterns. And we know GCHQ love that as well. Okay, are you looking for a change in career? <laughs> Don't do oh, it. Oh no, social work Don't is bread and butter. I absolutely yes. love it. <laughs> yes. Uh, Deb, what about you? I mean, for me... Um, if you if you look at probably social work and you think about all those times where there's been a big sudden shift and a change in a right let's let's completely revamp this and do things in a different way I can guarantee that there will probably have been a neurodivergent person involved at some point because we're the ones that do the whole why are we doing it this way when we could why aren't we doing it that way what about what about this what about that we're the ones that are looking outside of the box and we ask those questions those awkward questions that make everybody look at you like you're a bit strange but but actually there's thought behind it um and the focus so again if you're working on something and you want it to be thorough and you want it to be detailed and you probably want details to be in there that perhaps wouldn't have been seen maybe by someone else that that's what you'll get that hyper focus we can sit and work uh, on something for hours and hours and hours if it's the right moment and this is the thing so ADHD is attention deficit it isn't a deficit of attention it's it's just applying the attention to the right places when it's applied to the right places uh, it it's it really is a, a, an amazing skill and strength so some of the assessments, sometimes it can come out, you know, it, that would be the most thorough, most detailed thing you've ever read. <laughs> um, and it, uh, yeah, I think for me, it's it's just getting people. Um, and I know that's probably not a professional term, but it's getting people, it's looking at somebody um, and thinking about why. Why is that happening? Why Why is this? Why are they doing that? Why, why might this... Um, that's that's something that I'm really proud to be able to do and I think that's something that I I probably spend a lot of time doing is looking outside looking around looking behind um there's this assumption isn't there that we're very straightforward and it's just black and white but I think it's the opposite I think we, we're the ones looking around behind underneath there's no stone unturned um and I think that's our strength 
Wonderful. Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Florence. Now, if you are a BASWA member who wants to find out more about the BASWA Neurodivergent Social Work Group, I'm going to put a link in the show notes so you can find that. If you'd like to find out more about Florence's blog, The Neurodivergent Social Worker, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to that as well. Florence, Deb, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. It's been a real joy and I'm looking forward to working with you again once that guidance has been produced. Thanks so much for coming on to Let's Talk Social Work. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.